Hi, I'm Kelsey. I'm an IVF warrior and infertility advocate using my platform to spread awareness about infertility. And I'm Elizabeth. I'm a certified fertility coach, life coach, birth and bereavement doula, and new parent educator. I'm here to support and serve the tribe throughout their journey from conception to bringing your baby home and everything along the way. Welcome to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. Where we talk about the dreams and dilemmas of life, fertility, parenthood, and everything in between. We hope you enjoy this episode. Please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. Today, we have Sandy Christensen that I'm so excited to finally talk to in person. I feel like we've kind of liked each other's stuff back and forth on Instagram for a while. And she is another fellow fertility coach as well as an embryologist. So I can't wait to talk with you. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I think, um, I think maybe you and I started our pages on Instagram about the same time. I think we were like, you were one of my first follows. I don't know if that was the same awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I always feel like I, to look back at that, when did I start? I think it was sometime around a year ago or a little more Mm -hmm. at this point. I don't, I don't know. Um, So tell us a little bit about, and for anyone who's listening, um, Sandy's actually in the UK, um, which a lot of things regarding embryology and things like that are different in different places of the world. So if we're talking about something like that, I will certainly ask the question about if you know that if it's of course. the same in the States or not yeah. or whatnot. So um, for any of you that are listening, just to be aware of that ahead of time. So take us on your journey. You just mentioned before we started recording that you have been in the, in Europe for 25 years mm-hmm. and an embryology job brought you to the UK. So how long have you been doing embryology? What even got you down that path to say, this is interesting to me? Um, Tell us a little bit about your story there. Um, So I I went to university in Sweden and I started working at a blood lab. So um, blood donation center is one of my first jobs. And I really wanted to get into their stem cell program, but um, it was really difficult. And there was one of my colleagues who had been working there for like 10 years was sort of the next in line. And I was kind of like, oh, I'm not sure I can wait for 10 years. And that's when I started looking into um, exploring different options. So my background is a clinical scientist. Um, In Sweden, there is no sort of course for reproductive medicine or embryology training or anything like that. So I didn't actually know that my scientist degree could be used in embryology at all at that point. And, um, you know, an an ad popped up um, a job application form and I was like, this sounds Amazing. Did you even like, know what, what? Did you even know what that was at the time? I mean, I feel like most people, unless they're in the world, are like, "What does that even mean?" Exactly. No, um, I did know a little bit because I actually had a friend who was doing his bachelor's thesis there. Okay. So I was like, "This is awesome. This is a job for you know where he works. That's amazing." Um, and so I applied and got in, which was amazing. And so working in IVF over there you kind of you learn on the job um, but they also sent us to do training courses Um, there's a Nordic clinical course for embryology to help prepare for an ESHRA exam ESHRA is the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology and they have a 
clinical embryology certificate. So they have a certified program, um, which I've done the test and, and passed. So I am certified through ESHA as well. But that's, that is a, a thing because there are so many countries that don't have actual, you know, um, university degrees of being an embryologist when you, when you graduate. So that okay, was the so route all that I had across, to take. All across Europe then it, there is a standard. So whether you're in the UK or you're in Germany, it's the same or not necessarily? Not necessarily. You okay. don't have to, you don't have to take the exam, but it is, it is one way to be certified. Um, in the UK, there is a specialist training program that you can hop onto, which will give you a master's and the qualification as an embryologist. So you wouldn't have to do the extra certificate, but a lot of European clinics do prefer if you have it. Okay. Um, so right now in the U S anyway, there's a big surgence of fertility clinics that are arising because the demand is there. Is that the same where you are right now? Definitely. Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of new clinics that are popping up, um, in and around London. Um, staffing, I think has been a little bit of an issue, <laughs> um, because it is a specialist field. Um, and, in the UK, at least the training program that exists um, started up a couple of years ago. It, it took over from a different program that had, you know, maybe a hundred graduates per year or something like that. And as the new platform was taking over, like in the first year, there was like five new embryologists, which is not a lot. So we are sort of seeing a, a lack of qualified people at the moment. And previously, I know lots of clinics would employ staff from abroad, from Europe with similar qualifications. And that has become harder due to Brexit, <laughs> which is another complication that we've been facing over here. Right. So, yeah. And so when you started down that road of embryology, mm. what, what fascinated you the most about that, that field? And, and what did you find the most interesting aspect of it? As far as I think from my perspective, um, having gone through it and all of that, the, yeah. the numbers of, you know, let's say you get 10 eggs retrieved, the amount of attrition and the drop-off is staggering. Mm. And I think a lot of people going into that don't really realize that that's how it works really more often than not. Right. No, of course. Yeah. That, that IVF funnel, so to say, um, that is, I think, you know, watching embryo development, I find fascinating still to this day. Um, but knowing that the numbers sort of de decrease as you're going through, um, it's hard to see that as a positive progression as a patient, I'm sure. Um, but for us in the lab, it's more of a selection process. Um, and a lot of clinics are moving towards um, blastocyst culture, exclusively because it enables a better selection and there is you know can as you a result sorry sure. to interrupt you sandy for anyone who doesn't know what that means can you expand on that a little bit yeah of course um day zero the the day that you have your egg retrieval is is called your day zero and that is the same day that the eggs get fertilized so they will be fertilized either using a conventional ivf insemination method where the sperm are allowed to swim and fertilize the eggs themselves 
or ICSI, where one single sperm is injected into each individual egg. The next day is day one, that's when you check for fertilization. And the following day, you check for the cell division. So then you expect that one large egg cell to start dividing into multiple cells. And by the time it reaches day five, it should be a blastocyst. And for those that are listening also that are not aware, it used to be kind of day five was the day. Now some some go to day six as well. Is that correct for you guys in the UK also? Um, fresh transfers would normally be recommended on day five. However, in terms of freezing embryos, as long as they are at the blastocyst stage, they can be frozen on day five or day six. And the same goes for if there is any genetic testing, like a PGS screening of the embryos, they can be biopsied on day five or day six. Okay. And so is screening the PGS, PGT testing, is that something, so if you're working in a clinic, they usually here send them out to another lab, so to speak, to test those. Um, is that the same there? And when they come back to you guys, do you often see or not so often see that they're, um, quote unquote damage, because a lot of that's part of the risk that people say, like, do I risk sending my embryos to, you know, across the country to get tested? What if, you know, in the testing, something goes wrong. And then, you know, I started with five and then it comes back, you know, five abnormal. Is that because they actually were abnormal or because something happened to them? Is that, is that a thing or not really? Um, so, <laughs> well, in, I think the majority of clinics in the UK, the actual biopsy, and that's the extraction of the, the cells from the blastocyst does take place at your IVF clinic. And then those, the blastocysts are frozen and stored safely in your clinic. It's the cells that have been extracted that get sent to the testing laboratory. So that extraction process, the biopsy will take place, um, in the clinic again, at least here in the UK, um, and we would document if we think that there has been any damage to the embryos during the process. And that is something um, that we could, could tell quite clearly if there was any like strong detrimental damage. And that's just one of the steps. Um, another part that can cause more damage is if these cells have been split in the process and you then subject them to a freezing, which they need to be, they need to be cryopreserved and stored until the results come back. Um, then in the cryoprotection uh, media, it can happen that they get more damage and also in the freezing itself by being plunged into liquid nitrogen, some of those cells that have been damaged could be damaged further. And usually that wouldn't affect the entire embryo, it wouldn't affect the entire blastocyst, but just the area surrounding um, the section where the cells have been removed. So depending on how many cells have been removed, how many have been extracted, and how large an area has been possibly damaged will will then determine the likelihood of survival and um, after after freezing and thawing and the chances of implantation afterwards should the results come back normal so when they extract cells you mm. mentioned depending on the number of cells is it a different number each time or it or is there an ex exact amount they're trying to get how does that work there there is an amount that we 
you try to get, um, but there are there are hundreds of cells in a blastocyst. You try to get somewhere between three to five if there are very many cells. If there are fewer cells, you try to get one or two. The risk in doing that is that they are very, very small and they're very hard to see under a microscope. And that is the risk of, you know, possibly not moving the cells properly, maybe losing the cells in the process and getting the results back. And you have an embryo that says no result. And that's because the cells, there wasn't enough DNA in there to amplify, for example. So you want to try to get three to five cells out of the blastocyst for, for testing. Um, and any, any sort of damage that, that could happen to those cells would not have an impact on the DNA in them. So the procedure itself would not affect if the embryo is normal, genetically normal or genetically abnormal. Got it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then let's talk about egg freezing real quick. So sure. Are you able to see, um, when the eggs are retrieved, you know, sometimes I have clients that are like, they told me it was, my eggs were grainy and dark or something, you know, mm -hmm. different adjectives to explain mm -hmm. what they look like that might indicate healthy or unhealthy, but then mm -hmm. in the end they end up having healthy embryos. But during that time of being explained what they look like, they kind of stress about, oh my God, are my eggs not healthy? Are mm -hmm. you able to tell just visually from a retrieval if they are healthy or not healthy like is it is are they sometimes very obvious that they're unhealthy and then other times not so obvious i guess is the question sure um there are certain structures in the egg that can be visualized under a microscope that would lead us to come to a conclusion that they're either very healthy or possibly not very healthy um but it would be it would be hard to say for certain, you know, how healthy or the, the likelihood of them um, achieving a good fertilization and, you know, then a good embryo for, for uh, embryo transfer. I think one of the things that we pay attention to when we are freezing is we uh, document how the eggs react to the cryoprotectant. And that is also a good sign for how they will likely survive after freezing and thawing because egg survival rates are not as high as blastocyst survival rates, for example. Um, you want as many to survive as possible, of course, because you want as many of your eggs. I mean, everything, I mean, they're, they're, it's precious material and you want as many as possible to survive so that you then have as many as possible that get fertilized and progress on to healthy embryos. So that's, that's what we really look for is just to make sure that they are responding well to the cryoprotectant. Okay. Because I know a lot of people always get the, the kind of blanket answer, yeah, the blanket answer, like, oh, it's because the egg quality wasn't good. Or so then they internalize that of there's something wrong with me. My eggs aren't good. I'm not going to ever be able to get good eggs. Are you, do you see that? I say the egg wave is kind of how I refer to it is like maybe at one point their eggs aren't so good, but then you see another patient, you know, a few months down the line and they are able to produce a better quality egg. Definitely. I mean, we, unfortunately, a little bit of IVF is, and I know this is horrible to say, but a little bit is trial and error, especially for people who've been trying to conceive for a very long time and, you know, get into their first round of IVF. You don't know how they're going to respond to the hormone stimulation. You don't know how they're going to respond to the the meds, you don't know how many eggs, not really, there's no guarantee for how many eggs that are collected and how they fertilize and how they progress. And that first cycle can often be used as a diagnostic tool. 
Mm -hmm. So sometimes after a first cycle where we've seen either the quality of eggs are, you know, not as good as we would like to see. um, And sometimes we don't know that until they have been fertilized and it's the early embryo progression that does not um, meet the sort of benchmarks of what we would like to see. Um, And then, you know, we analyze that cycle, we go through pictures of embryos if they're available um, and talk about what we can do better in a future cycle. And, you know, a lot of clinics that I've worked in have tried to look at, uh, you know, the entire fertility picture, the whole sort of approach and, you know, go back to the drawing board should our patient be on supplements for a few months to, to help, like what kind of things can she be doing in her diet or lifestyle to help, et cetera, et cetera. And then come back in a few months time. And yes, there are definitely cases where we have seen that second cycle has a lot better results than the first one. But given that a lot of effort goes into sort of adjusting lots of different things. There's, there's no way of telling which one was the thing that worked or if it was all of them, you know, it's just, it is, it is a bit of a puzzle and we just all try very hard to put the pieces together. Yeah. Can you touch on real quick about the egg thawing and freeze the freezing and thawing perspective? Mm -hmm. Because when I did mine, I went at 30 and the doctor said, no, you're too young. They don't thaw well, come back later. So I went back at 36 and he's like, well, they still don't thaw well, but you know, you're single, let's do it at 36 since you, so you'll have 36 year old eggs. Um, Why is that for the people that are listening to learn the difference between thawing of an egg versus thawing of an embryo? I'm a bit confused why a doctor would tell you that. Is that just because the egg freezing results were not great at the time or? So the way that it was explained to me was the Mm -hmm. composition of an egg versus a composition of an actual embryo. The way that it thaws out is stronger as an embryo because of its. Yes. No, that's what I'm. I absolutely agree with that. And I, I, I think I touched on that briefly before as well, you know, as, as good as egg vitrification um, is, it's still not as, as good as embryos. I'm just confused as to why, oh, would why they would turn you away. Like yeah, when yeah. You're younger. Because <laughs> at that time, the technology the wasn't, wasn't mm-hmm. okay. Okay. So the freezing process had improved from age 30 to 36 of just yeah. how they were doing it. Yeah. So that's why he had said, Gotcha. But he always, <laughs> at that point, had always said, like, if you had an embryo, you would be much better off. Yes. Yes. Overall. And so, most people are very surprised in hearing that because they kind of think, well, I froze my eggs at 36. Everything's locked and loaded. Yeah. Um, and there is an actual difference of the thawing process, yeah. as I understand it. So if you could explain that for people. Sure. Um, it's, there are, complicated aspects but there are also there's also very sort of simple aspect to look at and that is um you know your egg is one very large cell and the blastocyst is hundreds of small cells now each cell whether it's the egg or the blastocyst has to replace the liquid on the inside with a cryoprotectant, which is the the media that we place it in to protect them from the really, really cold liquid nitrogen, which is, you know, minus 196 degrees Celsius. So that's almost like a a form of osmosis, it like exchanges through. And 
you can visualize it a little bit under a microscope as soon as you move your egg from your culture dish into this media it kind of shrinks and then it re-expands so then you know that that exchange has happened but that's one whole cell with a blastocyst the cells are much much smaller and there are so many of them so if one cell gets damaged in that process you still have 99% survival at least mm-hmm. whereas if one cell gets damaged in the egg freezing process that's that's your one egg Mm-hmm. And that's why, um, and it is very de- delicate. Vitrification in general is a very um, like time pressure, um, quick and very stressful procedure, which you get really, really good at. But you, essentially you have um, an egg that, you know, sits in a well in a dish for a few minutes and then you move it to your next well, which is only like one minute. And then the last well, you have to wash it, multiple sort of pipette movements up and down, load it onto your little straw, which you have to do in like two seconds, preferably less, and then plunge it straight into liquid nitrogen. And that is also, um, it's very delicate. And it's, it's easy for timings to not be absolutely accurate and that can cause damage to the cells and again if it's a blastocyst if it's one cell kind of I'm not going to say it doesn't matter but it's not going to impact the survival very much and then it's not going to impact the future chances of implanting or achieving a pregnancy but if it's one cell and it's the egg then then that's your egg that hasn't survived which is Mm. yeah really difficult yeah Okay. Um, so would it be fair to ask clinics to see like wh- how much experience the embryologist has who's doing this? So you know that they're experienced in their time framing and things? Yeah. So I think now it is so much more common um, due to egg banks. So the, the benefit that sort of what we call social egg freezing has had is that we have egg donation services. Um, Some people use a fresh donor where um, the cycles are synchronized. The donor has the eggs collected, which are then fertilized with the intended parent's partner sperm. And then the embryos are cultured and transferred um, into the couple who wants the donated eggs. But a couple of years ago, someone had this amazing idea. You know, we've we can, if the cycles didn't synchronize properly, or something happened along the way, we still have this donor who is ready to donate, but no one to match it with. Let's freeze the eggs, mm-hmm. and so people started egg banking in the same way that you have sperm banks, and we got really good at egg freezing and warming. So very, re- like over the last couple of years, the egg freezing and thawing has become very, very skilled and very, very good. And now we actually have good results because, you know, with those eggs, they get snapped up by recipients who want donor eggs quite quickly. And we know how they fertilize. We know if they generate pregnancies, mm-hmm. whereas people who possibly froze their eggs 10 years ago, they might not have come back for their eggs yet. You know, right. and so we don't have results if they generate pregnancies yet. Right. Uh, as far as patients that are there, I have a few clients that in their whole process of going through IVF, they have been able to text with their embryologists and talk to them on the phone throughout the days of how things are going and looking and whatnot. Is that 
common practice for, for you guys over there? Is that uncommon? Like what's the involvement that you have with the patients as they're going through the process? I feel like over here, um, we have a lot of patient interaction. Um, some, I think if clinics are associated with hospitals, there are certain regulations which would not enable texting. Um, but at one of the private clinics that I worked in, in London, we would phone patients every day of the embryo development and let them know what was going on. Got it, okay. And so you are also a fertility coach and how mm -hmm. did you transition from, or are you maybe doing both? How did that all come about? Yeah, I um, I actually, I had resigned from my full-time position um, in London and I do try to occasionally go in and locum at clinics to kind of keep up my skills and, you know, to make sure that I'm up to date on all new things, IVF, new methods, new tech and things like that. Um, but it was actually when I was um, helping a friend of mine who is going through her own IVF journey that I realized just how hard it can be for, for patients themselves and very, you know, naively or ignorantly didn't really fully understand until then, which I, I know might be hard to hear as someone who's gone through IVF, but, you know, a, a 10 years working as an embryologist, I, I didn't really understand how hard it could be for patients until a close friend went through it. Um, so the, the sort of the thought of behind me becoming a fertility coach was to try to help bridge that gap and support really um, to help people who are going through their journey and, and need that extra bit of uh, help or support that they're not getting from their clinic. Um, and obviously with my background, it is very science based and uh, scientific related and, you know, explaining what's going on in the lab when they might not know. Yeah, that's amazing. I think it's, uh everybody's um, view or perception of the journey is so different, right? From the, the financial person at the clinic to the embryologist at the clinic, to the people that take the blood every day yeah. at the clinic to, and as amazing as the clinics that I had gone to were and the staff was, it was once you walked out the door, you didn't feel that support of, wait, I forgot to ask that question or, you know, I'm in tears because of one thing or the other, you know, it seemed to be. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but it seemed like it was such a void of support in that realm of fertility when it really truly is, in my opinion, the biggest journey of your life, right? I mean, you can buy a house, but you'll sell that house. You, you, you're trying to have this family that you will have for the rest of your life. And there's nothing more important than trying to get the support through that. So I think having the coaches to lift you up and help you through that journey, just like if you're trying to lose weight, you're going to get a trainer at the gym, you know, three yeah. times a week yeah. to, to help you through that. This and again, only in my opinion is the most important thing that you can go through in your life. And I think having that support is amazing. So I'm glad I'm always happy to see more fertility coaches out there. Definitely. And I think, you know, one of, one of the things that I'm trying to do as well, you know, not only to support the community and to support, um, people going through their fertility journeys, but is, is to also help raise awareness. And that's not just with 
people who haven't gone through infertility themselves, but to also help raise awareness with the healthcare professionals yeah. who don't understand it the same way. So I've, I've found myself recently in this sort of unique position where I have a really good understanding of both worlds. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to help like relay that information back, whether it's, you know, comments that haven't been very helpful or um, just in general things that can be done to help support patients a little bit better. Um, that's yeah, I've um, had, I submitted um, an abstract to ESHA which got accepted and it is on the basis of, of that, of, um, you know, reproductive specialists should be offered additional training to help support mm -hmm. patients on their emotional journeys as well. Um, and, you know, if that's, if that's not something that is readily offered or available, then the clinics themselves should be offering a type of counseling, coaching, therapy service that is included, not an add-on that you have to pay like an extra, you know, couple of hundred dollars or you know whatever it might be for it should be should be available to them right because I understand you know they're not qualified in that right so as I'm sitting there crying to them taking my blood she's not qualified to talk to me about my emotions going through it right of like why my hcg isn't going down or you know, whatever. So I, I understand that perspective as well, but in hindsight, you know, it turns out that the clinics I was going to, they did have resources, but they weren't openly talking about the fact that they were available. And mm -hmm. that was another thing to me that is strange is just, you know, being able to promote that so that people know it is. And I think now that we are on Instagram and other areas, people know that it's a thing now, but it really is a matter of educating the public exactly. to yeah. see what is a fertility coach and what does that mean to my life? And how does that get me to my end goal faster and, and all of those things, because it is such an important path to be on with somebody to hold your hand through it, essentially. Of course, of course. And I think, you know, there's, there's a lot that we could hope for clinics to be doing. Um, and I think definitely additional training and, you know, how to break bad news to patients, because that's mm -hmm. something that we all had to do. And no one gave us any formal yeah. training of how to talk right. to patients when it was something negative. Mm -hmm. um, but then also to have a service that is like a part of your package or at least being highlighted as, you know, this is something we have. Some people choose not to do it, but this is here and at least highlight that that um, service of support actually exists and, and can help you, can help you on your journey, definitely. Yes. And for anybody who's kind of starting this path, I highly recommend you to follow Sandy's Instagram because it is so informative and can teach you so much of because it really is like a new language of learning what's happening and how the process works and everything. So how can people thank you? Them? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm on um, Instagram as Sandy Christensen underscore. And I, I make um, drawings, <laughs> which I turn into reels to help illustrate some of the laboratory processes, among lots of other things that I post just to try to try to help people 
in the community. <laughs> yes. And again, follow her because there's a lot of great information. And um, I'm sure if you have any questions, DM her. I'm sure you're happy to help people through that. I do. I do. I am. I might. My, my DM box is always open. <laughs> And is there any other advice that you would give to somebody who's starting this path or already on this path? Oh gosh. Um, you know, it's, I'm sure it's the same that you would get. It's, you know, find your support system, find your network, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are people who like complementary therapies um, to help deal with the stress or management of, of treatment or even trying to conceive without treatment. Um, but coaching, I think, is a really uh, useful and important tool that is available. Um, and yeah, group group support calls, communities, things like that. Just, just find your tribe. It's very important. And yeah. it, can, it can really make the difference in the journey. Absolutely. Don't be afraid to ask for help or reach out and, and say that you're, you need it because we all exactly. need help in different ways at different times in our life. And this is exactly. something that's so foreign to most of us when we're going through it. So Definitely. well, thank you again for your time today. Thank and you Elizabeth for having me. We look forward to connecting again soon. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to the Pretty Little Tribe podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Pretty Little Tribe. And if you related to this episode, take a screenshot and hashtag Pretty Little Tribe because we want to see those in our DMs so then we can share them in our story too and give you some love back. Of course, if you have a topic idea or want to be on the podcast, email us at prettylittletribe at gmail.com. Please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks again for joining your tribe today and we will see you next time.